Chapter 4, Part 2 of History of the Christian Church During the First Six Centuries. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anne Boulay. History of the Christian Church During the First Six Centuries by S. Cheatham. Chapter 4, Part 2. 3. The revelation made in Christ did not come into the world as philosophy, but as fact. The great fact, which lies at the root of all gospel teaching, is the incarnation of the Son of God for the redemption and renewal of man. But it soon became evident that a system, which claimed to deal authoritatively with the destiny of man and his relation with the deity, must have some kind of contact with systems of philosophy, which attempted the same task. It must either abrogate them, or define the relation which it bore to them. And again, it is scarcely possible for man to receive momentous truths into his mind without some attempt to explain them, to systematize them, to allot them their place in the general history of the world. This process of connecting the great truths of Christianity with the truths already known, and of blending Christian teaching with the intellectual life of the world, began early. Justin Martyr was not satisfied to regard Revelation as given only to the then small body of Christians. He, though born in the city built on the site of the ancient Sychem, was almost certainly of Hellenic race and certainly a pagan by early training. His love of learning drove him to philosophy, but in the philosophic schools he found no rest. There was always something wanting. He was impressed by the constancy with which the Christians bore their sufferings for the truth's sake and if we are to take the introduction to the dialogue with trypho as an account of a real incident in his own life an old man who accosted him as he walked on the shore directed him to the prophets and to christ but he was still a philosopher he regarded his conversion as a passing from an imperfect to the perfect philosophy to the gentiles also to the old philosophers and legislators something of the divine word was given though but as a germ the full revelation of the word was found only in the incarnate son even the law given to the jews was as a mere historical fact mean and imperfect but the truths typified in the law and foreshadowed in the prophets were great and glorious justin was not a great man though he had extensive knowledge his style is commonplace and often inaccurate but he represents a tendency which largely influenced the church at a most critical period but it was in Alexandria that Christian philosophy attained the highest development which it reached in the period which we are now considering. That famous city, situated almost at the meeting point of three continents, became soon after its foundation a center of intellectual life. When national barriers fell before the universal dominion of Rome, the great problems of the nature and destiny of man, as man, engaged more closely the attention of mankind and nowhere was man so cosmopolitan as at Alexandria. Thither flowed the thoughts of Greece and Rome, to mingle with those of Syria and Arabia, of Persia and India, and of Egypt itself. Here, more than elsewhere, philosophy required Christianity to give an account of its existence and its work. In Alexandria, as in other cities, there was in early times, we cannot tell exactly how early, a school for the instruction of candidates for Christian baptism. Here alone this catechetical school became a philosophic training college, to which many of the most distinguished ecclesiastics owe their early education. The first head of this school, whose name we know as Pantanus, once a Stoic philosopher, 
then after some years presidency over the alexandrian school a missionary in the east he however is famous only through his pupils no works of his remain titus flavius clemens a greek in spite of his roman name after wandering unsatisfied through the schools of philosophy found a satisfactory teacher in pantanus whose assistant he became and whom he ultimately succeeded in the management of the school in the persecution under severus he withdrew from alexandria and the last glimpse we have of him is at jerusalem in the year 211 his principal extant works the address to the greeks the tutor and the miscellanies correspond to the three stages of christian life conversion conduct contemplation he was not an original or independent thinker but he was well acquainted with the current systems of philosophy and saw more clearly than most of his contemporaries the great stream of the world's history he is not an adherent of one particular school when he speaks of philosophy he means not the stoic or the platonic the epicurean or the aristotelian but whatever each sect has taught which tends to righteousness of life and reverent science he selects in fact from the several systems such portions as correspond with the teaching of christ but a great teacher still was origen a born alexandrian and subjected from his earliest youth to the influences of his native place he was the son of a christian martyr leonides whose martyrdom he was only prevented from sharing by the tender care of his mother religiously brought up he devoted his aspiring spirit iron will and untiring industry to the alexandrian learning from clement who left alexandria in the year of his father's death he probably learned more through his writings than through oral instruction but he was a pupil in the philosophic school of anamonius sacchus commonly regarded as the founder of neoplatonism from whom he no doubt received a lasting influence he was but eighteen when he became the head of the catechetical school where poor as he was he declined to receive fees from his pupils preferring rather to confine his wants within the limits of his narrow means here he soon left to an assistant the training of the younger children while he led his more advanced hearers through hellenic culture to an intelligent comprehension of scripture and to a christian philosophy his irregular ordination as presbyter at caesarea brought upon him the displeasure of his bishop demetrius already jealous of his fame who drove him from the church of alexandria the neighboring churches however continued to hold him in honor in spite of the hostility of his bishop and he lived thenceforth commonly at caesarea surrounded by pupils twice during this period he was summoned to synods held in arabia against heretics Berillus of bostra and the arabici and on both occasions he succeeded in convincing them of their error in the persecution under decius he endured great suffering with steadfastness but died soon after his writings are preserved partly in the original greek partly in the latin translation of rufinus no name marks a more distinct epoch in the church than that of origen whatever may be the faults of his scriptural exposition he was the first to apply philology to the study of the bible the first who was conscious of the necessity of settling its text on a firm basis of documents and his work on principles may be said to be the first treatises on systematic theology which the christian church produced no one of his time few of any time manifested the same anxiety to discern the element of truth in the tenets of the several warring schools no one combined in an equal degree purity of life and biblical learning 
with wide knowledge and capacity for philosophical speculation. His influence on the church has probably not been less than that of Athanasius or Augustine, and even those who, in after time, condemned his tenets were themselves influenced by his method. Clement and Origen were in some respects wide asunder, yet they have much in common, and the views which both held we may consider as representing the doctrines of the Alexandrian school. Both are sympathetic students of philosophy, and both seek a system which may throw light upon the history of the universe. Both develop the doctrines which are implicitly contained in the bare facts of Christianity, avoiding on the one hand the narrowness of Judaism, on the other the unlicensed speculations of Gnosticism. In the writings of Clement and Origen, broadly considered, we may find something of a system. God alone is purely incorporeal energy. As this energy can never be idle, an infinite series of worlds must have preceded the present, and an infinite series must follow. The present world is the refuge and the school of souls who have sinned in another state of existence. Here they expiate their guilt, but as no spiritual being ever loses its freedom of will, they have the capacity for raising themselves out of their degradation to a higher life. Even the condemned suffer purifying, not everlasting punishment. God has revealed himself at various times and in many ways through the word to the peoples of the earth. Philosophy was a tutor to bring the Gentiles to Christ, as the law to bring the Jews. For the highest and final revelation is that made in the incarnation of Christ. Popular faith or belief does not rise above the reception of the most necessary truths on the ground of authority. A higher stage is that of knowledge, in which the Christian has attained to a scientific demonstration of the truths revealed in Christ. But the highest of all is wisdom, when the Christian has immediate intuition of divine truth. It was for the more highly gifted to inquire into the reasons, the philosophy, of the truths which the apostles taught to the multitude. But besides the simple and necessary doctrine which was given to all believers, the Lord, when he took the apostles aside privately, imparted to them treasures of secret wisdom, which through them had been handed down to the true Gnostics. Both Clement and Origen expressed a certain dread of putting a sword into a child's hand by publishing to the many doctrines only suited for the few. The Christian sage or Gnostic must aim at attaining not only a higher range of knowledge, but a complete freedom from the passions, even the passions which may have a good end, which move the greater part of mankind. He must deserve the words, I have said, ye are gods. He must be like God, in a sense deified. To this end he must free himself, so far as may be, from the bonds of the flesh. And he must pursue his great end, that of seeing God and becoming like him, with no reference to his own personal welfare. If his own salvation were offered him on the one hand, and the knowledge of God on the other, he would unhesitatingly choose the knowledge of God. With the view which the Alexandrians held on the pleasures of sense, it will readily be understood that they rejected with horror the sensuous conceptions of the thousand years' reign of Christ on earth, which had been held by many of the early teachers of the church, and that they did not regard the resurrection as a reconstruction of the decaying relics of mortality, but as a rising of the spiritual body to eternal life. Many points of their system could hardly be defended by a literal interpretation of scripture, and Origen and his school no doubt made free use of allegory. It would, however, be a mistake to imagine that Origen gave greater scope to arbitrary interpretation than he found existing. Rather, he systematized it. He found in the scriptures a threefold sense, historical, moral, and mystic, 
corresponding to the threefold division of body, soul, and spirit. He is, in fact, the father of grammatical rather than of mystical exposition. Doctrines such as those of origin naturally called forth vehement opposition and as vehement defense. Among those who continued the tradition of origin was his convert and pupil Dionysus, himself also head of the catechetical school, and afterwards for some years bishop of Alexandria, who shows in the remains of his writings both philosophical and critical power. Like his master, he was much opposed to the sensuous conceptions of the thousand years reign of Christ on earth. He seems to have deserved by his wise and temperate spirit the epithet which Eusebius bestows upon him of the great bishop. Gregory, bishop of Neo-Caesarea, on whom a later generation bestowed the name of Thaumaturgus, the wonder-worker, was another very distinguished pupil of Origen, following him perhaps more in the ascetic than in the philosophic direction. It is highly probable also that Hierax, or Hierarchus of Leontopolis, derived his peculiar opinions from Origen rather than from the Manichaean source to which Epiphanius refers them. He rejected the doctrine of the resurrection of the flesh and all sensuous representations of the life to come, and very strongly discouraged marriage and the use of wine and flesh. But even the exaggerations of Hyrax did not seem to have called forth any formal opposition at the time. The first who formally impugned the teaching of Origen appears to have been Methodius, bishop of Tyre, who, though himself of the Platonic school, attacked his doctrines on the continued evolution of worlds, on the resurrection, and on the absolute freedom of the human will. It was probably this attack which drew forth a defense from the excellent Pamphilius, a presbyter of Caesarea, perhaps the first wealthy churchman who employed his means in collecting a theological library. His defense was still incomplete when its author met a martyr's death. It was completed by his devoted friend and intellectual son, Eusebius, Pamphilus's Eusebius, as he came to be called. In the next generation, the controversy about Origen and his opinions blazed out with greater fierceness. End of chapter 4, part 2